0: Welcome to International Outlook, a regular podcast series from the New Zealand Initiative on International Affairs. I'm your host, Ben Craven, and today we're joined by our Executive Director, Dr Oliver Hardwich. Hi Oliver. Hi Ben. Oliver, your latest newsroom column is all about the tumultuous leadership of UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Most people know Boris is a quite larger than life character. Um, I've always kind of had a bit of a soft spot for him. Um, He doesn't seem like most other politicians. Yeah, because he isn't. That's right, that's right. Uh, So most other politicians seem like they are trying to be the everyman, but you say in your column that Boris is actually doing quite the opposite. But you also have uh, some personal experience with Boris. Can you tell us a bit more about your time in, in the UK and your interactions with him?
1: Well yes, um, I started my think tank career in London. I was um, for three and a half years with a think tank called Policy Exchange. That was a conservative think tank in Westminster quite closely linked to David Cameron, George Osborne, Michael Gove. In fact Michael Gove was for a time our chair. And uh, it was in that time that I had a personal experience with Boris Johnson. Well, first of all, I must say, I was a fan of Boris Johnson's in the early 2000s because um, he was a columnist with the Daily Telegraph and a weekly column was paid handsomely for that column, hundreds of thousands of pounds for this column. And it was deserved because it was one of the best columns you could read. He's a great writer. He was a fantastic writer. I mean, he was often exaggerating things, of course, exactly the Boris Johnson we know. But as a... An opinion writer, wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, really interesting, imaginative columns and outrageous columns at times, and I really love that. Anyway, um, he was also an MP. He was the MP for Henley, um, that's um, in Oxfordshire, and um, it was quite clear he was going places. He was definitely on the rise, even though he had a bit of a setback when he lied about an affair and was sacked by conservative leader Michael Howard back then, I think it was 2005. Anyway, his career wasn't really going far at the time because he was still a backbencher in an opposition party. And there was a rumor circling in Westminster that he would consider running for the mayoralty in London. And back then, if you remember, there was Ken Livingston, a very left-wing Labour mayor of London. And London is a Labour city anyway, so it was very unlikely that a Conservative would actually gain the mayoralty but there was this rumor that Boris now just wanted to try himself out and maybe just run for mayor of London. That was the rumor. I heard the story that uh, Charles Moore, former editor of The Telegraph, Sunday Telegraph, The Spectator, and my chair at the time at Policy Exchange, so he was asked, well, what do you make of that rumor that Boris Johnson is going to run for mayor of London? And Charles just laughed it off and said, well, really, mayor of London, Boris? <laughs> oh, you're right, Mayor of Henley, perhaps, but, you know, mayor of London. And this being westminster apparently boris heard that charles dismissed the idea and said immediately i'm running um just to prove charles moore wrong who was his former boss at the telegraph and um so boris ran he first ran for the nomination of the conservative party which he got um perhaps not a great surprise because he had that star factor and i mean the Running it's a for the seat anyway. It's a Labour thing, yeah. exactly. I mean, there was no chance people thought that a Conservative would win in yeah. London. So you might just as well give it to Boris. So he secured the nomination of his party. And then something unexpected happened. Uh, the opinion polls actually showed that Londoners liked him because he was a star from BBC television. So he was on Have I Got News For You? So he had a personality and a uh, star factor. And suddenly he was leading the it's opinion kind of, polls. He's,
0: he's kind of uh, willing to take the. Um take the mickey a bit, um, have have fun at his own expense.
1: Yes, at least um, that's what it looks like. I'm not quite sure. I think you have to differentiate between um, Mr. Johnson and Boris. Boris is the character he created. The Johnson is actually somewhat different. Anyway... Boris was suddenly in the lead. The problem was actually he had no policies. That's actually not true, by the way. He had three policies, you know. Boris, famous, of course, as a cyclist uh, in London, which is dangerous. He said, oh, have I told you that I really hate the bendy buses? The bendy buses are really dangerous and the bendy buses are really killing cyclists and uh, so, my first policy is get rid of the bendy buses. And the second policy that Boris had was uh, I think we should bring back the Roofmaster, you know, the double-decker buses. They were fantastic for Britain and they are iconic and we should bring them back and the third policy uh have i told you about the bendy bus (laughs) and (laughs) and that was roughly where where boris stood as candidate in the lead destined to take over from ken livingston and when it dawned on him that maybe these two and a half policies weren't quite enough his campaign team started phoning around london think tanks including policy exchange i was chief economist and we got a call uh would you have time for a meeting with boris he needs some Policy input. <laughs> <laughs> putting it's, it lightly, I by the sound yeah, of it. Yeah, I mean, that's, of course, the kind of call that you like to get as I think tanker, Of course. Because it's your job to influence policy thinking. So, together with a colleague of mine, um, James O'Shaughnessy, later Lord O'Shaughnessy, um, James and I, we visited um, Boris in his small office in Portcullis House opposite Parliament. And um, it was um, a meeting, my first personal meeting with Boris, which lasted about an hour, And um, it was like the Boris I knew from TV. So with the kind of disheveled hair and he had a uh, big hole in the back of his shirt and an equally sized big hole in the sole of his shoe. And my colleague told me afterwards, you have to be really upper class in London to be able to afford that. (laughs) And Boris turns up and immediately runs the meeting. Uh, But in a way that I have never experienced with any politician. So basically the meeting went like this. Boris comes in and says, Oliver, great to see you. I heard that you've done a great job on housing policy and you've learned so much about housing. You've got all the great ideas for housing policy, and I want to be mayor of London. Tell me what should I do about housing? And then basically I, I briefed him in a kind of normal kind of voice and uh, <laughs> explained to him all the work we've done in policy exchange, and housing incentives, localism, Switzerland, blah, blah, blah. And I, I didn't really have a chance to explain this properly because Boris interrupted all the time. And he basically just gesticulated with his hands and arms and everything. and Oh, this is great. Oh, wonderful. And write the stone. To his advice. And write the stone. And, oh, great idea. We're going to do that. We're going to do that. We're going to so do that. And I just thought, what was that?
0: So it's kind of in one ear and out the other. You yeah, but it with. was just bizarre.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've briefed plenty of politicians in my time, but Boris? Seriously. So, we left this meeting after an hour, and I thought, was this successful now? And my colleague looked at me. We, 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 mm, this was probably good. Anyway, I get back to my office in Westminster and I get a call from his campaign manager. Boris really liked it. Have you got any more ideas? <laughs> That's what a think tank needs to hear. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So I said, well, it's very nice about Boris and the Bendy bus and, 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 and the Rootmaster and so on. But does he actually realize this Rootmaster hasn't been built for decades? and You can't just rebuild it. And it probably wouldn't actually... F- meet modern security and safety standards and whatever. So, Why don't you have a design competition? Actually give it to London design students and engineering students and give them a task. What would a 21st century route master look like? Oh, great idea. So they went with it. (laughs) They had a design competition. The the route masters, the new ones, the double-decker buses, they're going around London. now. And actually that year, I remember I got a, Christmas card from Boris Johnson which is nice. It said Merry Christmas and Happy New Mayor. That's that's very on brand. <laughs> it was very on brand and uh, it was fun. So uh, that was my interaction with Boris. And then he became mayor and I must admit actually I voted for him because I mean <laughs> the choice was him or Ken Livingston. Uh, and Ken Livingston of course with um, sympathies for um, Venezuelan dictators was not quite the right kind of alternative for me. So Boris became mayor, and uh, initially his uh, mailty was chaotic. Um, and I know a bit about that because um, some of my ex-colleagues then worked for him. So my former boss at Policy Exchange became his chief of staff and lasted about 100 days and completely fell out with him and actually started a f- Twitter feud with him because he, he just hated the way he was disorganized. Right. But also another colleague of mine, very um, um, young, bright, um, academic, Monira Merza, became one of Boris's deputies as mayor. He had nine deputies. And you know what? I think actually this is how Boris runs things. He um, needs people to do the work for him and actually reading about his career, that seems to be a constant feature of his career. So when he was editor of The Spectator, for example, it's actually quite well known he didn't really edit the magazine, it was his deputy. His deputy actually made sure that the articles arrived on time, got edited, and the magazine got laid out. And then Boris um, arrived a little bit too late and had a look and was happy. He's more of a figurehead character then. And that's exactly what he was as mayor. I mean, as mayor, he was the guy who kind of bumbled through the opening of the Olympics and um, made sure that people had a good time. But the actual policy work, the detailed work, that was always for his deputy. So when he became prime minister later, I thought, well, if he's going to run Britain like that... uh, as he was as mayor, he will have a brilliant cabinet. He will let it all happen with cabinet ministers and his chief of staff and people like Dominic Cummings, of course, doing the work for him. And he will just be the kind of figurehead and he will play Boris. And in a way, that's what he tried to do. And it even worked for a while um, until, and that's what I actually pointed in my column this week in newsroom, until he got rid of Dominic Cummings, or rather his newly wed wife Carrie fell out with Dominic Cummings, um, voted leave on Dominic Cummings and took back control (laughs) in Brexit parlance. But um, um, I think that was the moment when it all fell apart for Boris. I mean, Boris um, was never into details. I mean, he was hated at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office for being a foreign secretary who simply wasn't across the brief. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, when you're prime minister, you probably get away with it, provided you've got good people around you. But I think what we're seeing now with this uh, Downing Street Party affair – um, you see where this can also lead. I mean, without Dominic Cummings as, as the policy kind of um, background guy and uh, the enforcer in many ways that he was, and with this kind of negligent culture that Boris had created, is it any wonder that Downing Street descended into this party chaos? Exactly. Uh, and I don't think it is any wonder because it actually matches Boris' personality. Mm. The really interesting thing, I believe, is actually that uh, the wider public had never really seen that side of Boris and never actually made the differentiation between Boris, the, the clown esque persona he created, and Mr. Johnson, the politician, the MP, the Prime Minister, and previously the Mayor and the Foreign Secretary. And it really took this party affair and Downing Street for people to finally realize that these are two distinct persons. Mm. and before that, I think he could get away with everything and people would be very forgiving, but now I think that's come to an end.
0: What do you think it means now for him? So uh, the Sue Gray reports come out, um, this is the the big report into these Downing Street parties and the lockdown
1: breaches. Um, it, is he likely to be rolled? Yes, I think it is quite likely. And I mean, you can see how he's fighting to delay the process. Mm -hmm. So this Sue Gray report, we've been waiting for this now for a couple of weeks. It came out as a document of, well, 12 pages of which two are empty and one is the cover page. And another two pages are explaining to us what COVID-19 is. I mean, seriously. Um, And now he's promised another Sue Gray report because um, Scotland Yard is, of course, investigating him as well. As every delay tactic Again, employed to make sure that he's got a chance to kind of r- wriggle himself out of this difficult situation. Oh, and he's off to Ukraine as well. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, except he's cancelled a phone call I read with Vladimir Putin. Well, okay. Anyway, um, so he's trying to gain time. But even if he gets the time, even if he somehow manages to survive this affair, which I'm not sure he will, mm. I'm Quite convinced he will not run for prime minister in the next UK election because he's damaged goods. The public have now finally, after 20 years practically, seen through him and actually realized what a nasty character he is. And by the way, what I find really interesting about all of this, and I mentioned this in my column, people who've worked closely with Boris Johnson have practically all fallen out with him after leaving their jobs. So it is a f- constant feature. Max Hastings who was one of his editors in his time as a journalist, wrote a scathing article in the Daily Mail in 2012 about Boris Johnson being totally morally unfit to run for any high office. And actually, Max Hastings said, if he ever becomes prime minister, I'm on the first first flight to Buenos Aires. I don't think wow. Max Hastings actually left. Simon Heffer, um, another conservative columnist, um, opinion leader. So not someone from the left who would hate Boris in any case, but someone mm. from his own... Uh, side of politics, scathing, really, uh, the, the n- negligence, the laziness, the um, deceit, the constant lying that comes from Boris Johnson all the time. Similarly, Michael Goff. Similarly, my old colleague, Nick Bowles, who was his chief of staff. Um, and now Dominic Cummings, of course, who also yeah. worked with him and then wrote in a scathing blog post that actually this guy wanted to have power. He wanted to be prime minister. And then once he became prime minister, showed no interest in, it, in the job. And Cummings also wrote a really interesting comment on his blog saying that with Boris, it's just one mask after the other. Not a COVID mask, of course, but just different personalities. You never quite know what kind of Boris you actually meet. Other quotes uh, from people who worked with him. um, He is much nastier, much more brutal, much less um, charming, really, in in direct interactions um, than the public would actually expect, except he can be totally charming when he wants something. Right, so with
0: this big personality that is Boris Johnson, um, if he were then to be rolled, uh, I mean, the Conservatives have been in power for quite a long time now. Will there then be a battle for the um, heart and soul of the Conservative Party? What do they believe in?
1: Very good question. I mean, um, they had David Cameron, of course, from 2010 to 2016, um, and... um in hindsight, these were probably the good times for the Conservative Party, even though it was the times of the GFC and austerity, and then he lost the Brexit vote. But actually, it was probably the most stable time the Conservative Party had in a long time. And afterwards, I mean, Theresa May didn't do a good job in Brexit, um, and uh, she was rightly kicked out by her party because she was dreadful as prime minister. Um, and then the party picked uh, the most popular candidate, Boris. Uh, but who, and Boris doesn't have much going for him. Um, when it comes to policy, it's um, he, he doesn't stand for any particular wing of the party anymore. He was picked for being popular and now, name recognition, right? Yeah, yeah, and name recognition. But now he's an unpopular populist, which doesn't really work. So um, the party now has to get rid of him, if not now, then certainly before the next election. And then the Conservative Party in Britain has to figure out what it actually wants to be. Um, They have become the party of big government, of big government spending initiatives. I mean, that is not just Boris Johnson. That's Rishi Sunak, the chancellor. Mm. Um, They've had some really massive projects which probably don't make any sense, like um, high-speed rail from London to Birmingham. Uh, Very controversial. Very controversial. doesn't make much sense. Actually, taxes have also gone up and they are discussing an, an increase now in the national security contribution. Well, it's not really what the Conservative Party once stood for. So the party actually has to really figure out what it wants to be and how they could possibly defend some of these former Labour seats in the north of England, the red-walled seats that Boris Johnson won for them. He won them with this basically celebrity factor. But if you, as a Conservative Party, want to hold on to these seats, you actually have to offer something to ordinary people who otherwise would never dream of voting Conservative and that's going to be a really tough task for the Conservative Party. Apart from that, there is not a natural candidate. I mean, Boris was the lead candidate back then when it came to the question of who should succeed Theresa May. I don't really see a clear successor in the Conservative Party. could be Rishi Sun could be Liz Truss, neither of whom really has the support of the whole Conservative Party. Maybe there is Michael Gove still sitting in the background thinking he could be the kind of dark horse who gets it. But um, it's going to be a really tough challenge for the Conservative Party to nominate the next leader and prime minister. And then also, I mean, the convention seems to be once you become the prime minister in the middle of a term, you maybe have, maybe you give yourself three, four months. But then you go to the poll because you want to seek your own mandate. Well, it would kind of be madness for the Conservative Party in the current circumstances. They are trailing labor in the polls um, in the UK, and remember, they had an 80-seat majority after the last election. They are almost certain to lose that if they can get a majority at all. But at the moment, it would more look more likely that Labour would actually take over.
0: And taking a geopolitical view, um, the UK has been quite clear in its support of Ukraine. With all of Boris Johnson's domestic problems engulfing him, uh, where does that leave the UK being able to project its power to be able to be a force for good in the world?
1: Well I think um, Ukraine and Russia, that's a special case because it has a long history now in British foreign politics, uh, this rivalry with Russia, going back uh, really um, not just to the Cold War but more recently to the time of um, the poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko and that was in London 2004 or five, I believe. And uh, the relationship between London and Moscow has been really strained ever since. And of course, there were um, other assassinations on British soil. So, no wonder that the UK government is coming to Ukraine support because it goes against Russia. So, that's a very special relationship in foreign policy terms. But um, what Britain really has to do, regardless of who becomes the next prime minister after Boris Johnson, is they have to now define their position after Brexit. Boris was very good at, of course, talking about Britain 2.0 and a new global Britain, but he never filled that with life. These were just slogans. And the next prime minister has to fill this with life and actually has to make sure that Britain reconnects with the world after Brexit and also reconnects with the European Union in some way. Because we've seen the problems with Brexit. I mean, Brexit is a great opportunity, I still believe that, but the way it's been handled was abysmally bad in Britain and I think there's a lot of work for whoever becomes prime minister.
0: Dr Oliver Hardwich, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, some very interesting developments in the UK and I'm sure there'll be much more to say in the coming weeks. Thank you. To stay up to date with our latest research, opinions and events, sign up to our weekly insights newsletter at nzinitiative.org.nz.